All right, well, good morning again. And if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you please open them to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And today we look at a fascinating chapter of the book of Daniel in a message entitled, The Hard Way. Let's begin in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. To generation. Over the last few weeks, my wife and I and Autumn uh, have been watching a show set in the islands of Hawaii. And you can tell at this time of the year, there's a lot of reasons to watch a show set in the islands of Hawaii. But one of the phrases that they use over and over and over again that I just love is when they use the phrase, talk story. Talk story. It's their way of saying, having a conversation, talking about the past, recounting a personal experience. They sit together and they talk story. Daniel chapter 4, this morning, you and I will talk story. It's an autobiography. It is one of the most unique chapters in the book of Daniel. Not because of the content of the story in which we will read together but because of who wrote it. This chapter of Daniel was written by King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a story of his testimony. It's a story on how the God Most High got his attention. It's a story about him having to learn the hard way. And as we read through it together, let us understand that this man is writing to you and I that we may know his story. That we may know the God in whom he glorifies at the end. That you and I may do it the easy way rather than coming to God the hard way. And so we begin in verse 4 together. Again, personally, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the vision of my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring all of the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known To me, it's interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him, the spirit of the holy God, it was the spirit of the holy God, and I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the vision of my dream, and that I may that I have seen and its interpretation. And these were 
the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its heights reached the heavens. And it could be seen from the ends of the, all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all the beasts of the field found, and all the beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head while on my bed. Sometimes I think Dr. Seuss wrote this, by the way. Um, a holy one coming down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let uh, him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let the hearts, I'm sorry, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision was by decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar is confronted by a dream. This time, rather than being troubled by the dream, he is terrified by the dream. He realizes in in his heart that there is something significant about this dream. The dream, of course, uh, entails that of a large tree that grows and that can be seen from all of the regions of the world. The beasts of the field reside under it. The birds of the air reside within it. And when bringing this dream to his counselors, again, the wisdom of this world was incapable, incapable of giving him the interpretation. King Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn the hard way. God is showing him months before these events actually transpire within the life of the king, giving him opportunity to repent. We must be very careful that we do not position ourselves in a manner of pride before God. As the Bible says very clearly in Proverbs 16, 18, and it should be on the slide behind you, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And as King Nebuchadnezzar was now going to be faced with his pride, his arrogance, he's going to learn the hard way, one of the two fundamental purposes for reading this book, and that is to know 
that God is sovereign over the affairs of men. And nothing will sway him from fulfilling those things that he has set forth to fulfill. But again, after receiving the dream and being troubled by the dream, he did what he would do in any occasion, and that is to find counsel, to give him understanding of the dream's meaning. Again, we see, as we did in previous chapters, that he gathers all of his counselors together in hopes that they can give him its interpretation. But the wisdom of this world is limited, and the natural man cannot receive the things of God. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14-16, through 16, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has made known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In all of Nebuchadnezzar's wealth, in all of his prosperity, the interpretation of this dream escaped him. He couldn't ascertain it through all of the material possessions in which he had, including all of the wisdom of all of the nations that compiled in uh, uh, the uh, Babylonian Empire. He still could not come to the determination of what God was saying to him. So he needed to rely on an old friend. Being clear that the dream was given to him by a watcher, That word watcher most likely means angel, an angel of God. So he knew that the source of this dream was the Most High God. And notice the, if you will, the progression or evolution of the revelation towards Nebuchadnezzar as he starts with his God, Belteshazzar, and then ends with a completely new embrace of the Most Holy God. But the key element that was keeping Nebuchadnezzar from God was the pride of his own heart. One of the aspects of God, characteristics of God, that I have come to learn over the last 35 years is this. He is an extremely gracious God. He often warns us in advance of potential failures. He often shows us the content of our own heart through his word that we may deal with it, repent of those things. He gives us the opportunity to get right with him before he steps in and begins a chastening process because again, he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. This is what he was doing for Nebuchadnezzar and we'll see that in just a moment. He was giving him an opportunity to repent. As one wrote in his commentary, he said, It was a time of peace and prosperity that God sent this dream to the king. For this dream was really a divine warning to him that his sins were going to catch up with him at last. He was secure, but he was falsely secure. You know, often when we are going through 
times of prosperity or we are in times of blessing, we have a tendency to overlook our sin. We have a tendency to think, well, it doesn't really matter. God doesn't really care about him because if he did, I wouldn't be prospering in this way. But I've noticed that God often blesses us when we don't deserve it. We enjoy the blessings of God when we still have things to repent of because He's giving us an opportunity to repent. Because it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. He wants us to come and to confess our sins that He may cleanse us from that unrighteousness and create in us that righteousness again. But when we don't heed that warning, two things happen. Number one, we endanger ourselves hardening our heart before God. And number two, we provoke the chastening of God. Now the grace of God is wonderful, but the other lesson that I've learned after 35 years is that the chastening of God can be quite abrupt and come out of nowhere. And then you say, oh Lord, but I never knew. Oh, you knew, but you just decided to ignore We have a tendency to give ourselves a pass all the time. And I'm all for the grace of God, trust me. I was once introduced when I spoke at a conference as the epitome of the grace of God. I thought that was a compliment until I looked up the word epitome. I stand here today because of the grace of God. I'm all for the grace of God. God gives us that grace that we may repent and be right with Him. As He did here, Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar wants to understand what he has just seen. So he brings in his trusty advisor, who now has been promoted to the chief of all of his counselors. And so Daniel now begins to reveal the received dream to him in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and the thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said to Belteshazzar, Do do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you, Belteshazzar. Answer, answered and said, My lord, this is Daniel, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Daniel was faced with a choice. After hearing the dream, and God giving him the revelation of what that dream actually means. It says that he was astonished, and that word is appalled. He was troubled in his heart and was concerned about revealing to the king its interpretation. The king even softens it for Daniel and says, Daniel, don't be worried about it. Whatever it is, I want to know the truth. Tell me straight up what it is. Daniel again tries to soften the blow. Oh, I hoped, I wish that this was concerning your enemies or someone else, king. See, Daniel was faced with a choice that we are faced with today. We have the truth of God's word, don't we? But we have to choose to share the truth. We have to stand instead of compromising and capitulating with the world concerning God's truth. You and I are faced with a decision that others throughout the Bible have been faced with. Moses was faced with it before Pharaoh. Nathan was faced with it before King David. 
Elijah was faced with it before King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Isaiah before Hezekiah. John the Baptist before King Herod. And that is this. Do I need to, should I tell them what they need to hear or do I tell them what they want to hear? This is a huge decision. The world is perpetuating the idea that true love is manifested in the form of us telling individuals what they want to hear. We are being encouraged that if we truly love someone, that we need to affirm the sin in their life. That we need to confirm it. That we need to let them know that it's okay. But is that really what God thinks? Is that what God's Word says? Or are we going to be held accountable for giving the truth at that moment, as unpopular as that notion is today? Are we going to stand in grace, in humility, and in love and share with people what they need to know rather than what they want to know? So Daniel, taken back by this, the king encourages him, and now in verse 20, he begins to reveal to the king what the dream meant. The tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwell. And those branches, the birds of the heaven, had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. As inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree. And destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with bands of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like an oxen. They shall wet, your, uh, wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. King, please repent. God sees your heart. God knows what's going on. For it is God who has given you this dominion, this kingdom. 
And this kingdom is great. And all of the earth are aware of this kingdom. All benefit from this kingdom. But your heart is not right before the Lord. And inasmuch as He's given you this kingdom, He shall take it away from you. But only for a matter of time. And then it will be restored to you. Notice with me the hope in this all. Though a, a, an experience of judgment is soon to arrive, the hope of restoration is already being given before that judgment occurs. God is showing His people, as just He did with the nation of Israel, though I will take you into the Babylonian captivity, it will only be for a short period of time, 70 years. And then after that, I will reestablish you as a nation once again. See, the hope of God always succeeds the judgment of God. Notice with me that when we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross was the judgment of God being poured out upon the Son of God, Jesus Himself. And then on the third day came the hope, the resurrection from the dead, new life possible in and through Jesus Christ. At the end of days, we know that Jesus Christ will return and that in those seven years prior, God will deal with the world for its evil, corruption, sin, and the absolute insanity that the world has brought about. And it will be a horrific period of time. The Bible calls it the Great Tribulation period. But after Jesus returns in Revelation 19, we are moved into the Millennial Kingdom, a new hope. And then after that, the new heavens and a new earth, another hope to be had. When we are willing to allow God to deal with our sin through the cross of Jesus Christ, when we lay down our pride and humbly go before Him and say, Lord, forgive me for the sin that is in my life. That's an uncomfortable moment. But it's the most freeing moment that you'll ever have before God. Because what proceeds next is a brand new hope for now you are a brand new creation in Christ. And though Nebuchadnezzar is now on the precipice of judgment, in this moment of prosperity, undoubtedly this is the last thing that was on Nebuchadnezzar's mind. Some Bible students believe that we are 20 years later after the events of chapter 3. And notice how often God tried to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. In chapter 1, through Daniel and his friends being more healthier than the rest of his counselors because they followed God. In chapter 2, when his first dream was given to him, he was shown by Daniel that God was ultimately in control. And in chapter 3, again, God tries to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention by rescuing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and joining them there. But now time has passed. And it appears that within this prosperity that Nebuchadnezzar is enjoying, apathy and complacency have set in once again. And the arrogance and the pride has grown within his heart. And God says, you must learn that I am the God of all creation. 
that I am sovereign over all the affairs of men. I give kingdoms to who I choose to give them to, and I will take them from those in whom I choose to do. For seven years, you will wander in the fields, as Daniel said in Daniel chapter 5, verse 21, about Nebuchadnezzar, that he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and appoints over it whomever he chooses." Many who I speak to, who do not know Jesus Christ, believe in their mind that they are truly free moral agents control, in control of their complete destiny. Meaning that they are the authors and the finishers of their life here on this earth. But a biblical perspective teaches us quickly that there are truly only two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of Satan. There are two kingdoms. These kingdoms are diametrically opposed to one another. One is ruled in righteousness, love, and in truth. The other one is ruled by deception, lying, and destruction. Let us know and understand that the Bible clearly tells us that Satan has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. Peter tells us that he's come like a roaring lion, seeking in whom he may destroy. There are only two kingdoms in this world. Which kingdom are you part of today? You think that you are the master of your own destiny, that you're writing it and you're authoring it and your life is in your hands. You are in for one of the greatest shocks of your entire existence when you find out that is not true. Know this, that Satan has kept you blinded. He's kept you ignorant of the things of God. He has lied to you. He has deceived you. And there is nothing at the end for you except a world of destruction. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what Jesus came to reverse and to save us from. That's the reality in which we occupy as individuals here on this earth. What's happening in our society today, I think, is a collapse of the confidence of people in the institutions of man within society. I think what we're seeing around us is our individuals who are now saying to themselves, there isn't really anything in this world that I can trust. The government, the scientists... You know, our justice system, our medical community, and even to some regards, the church. But in the vacuum of that hopelessness is an opportunity. Because I don't preach the truth, I preach Jesus. I'm sorry, that was totally wrong. I don't preach the church, I preach Jesus right? Thank God I caught myself. Well, he doesn't preach the truth. Uh, There's a church down there. They got a better potluck. Let's go check that out. 
It happens to the best of us, guys. You just roll with it. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. You just made me look good, Jeff. We need to understand that we need to point people to Jesus, not the institution of the church. Though the church is still here active and is being used by the Lord greatly, the church is more than the American institution that it's created the church in its own image. We've created consumers rather than communers with God. I've actually had people come to church saying, we're searching for a church and we're looking at a church and we are looking to get the most bang from our tithing bucks. So I gave them a list of other churches. <laughs> we're, we're preaching Jesus who said 2,000 years ago that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul said it this way, that there's only one mediator between man and God, and that is Christ Jesus. Let us understand that though the world is failing around us, Jesus has never failed us. He's always told us from the beginning what we can expect. It is only when we place false expectations upon him that we then become disappointed. So many have created additional promises from God's word to themselves that aren't really there. Some have come and believed that when I come and become a Christian, everything is going to get better in life. That's not necessarily true, is it? Often it becomes worse. As one said, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to swim against the current. And though things may get tougher for me here on this earth because I've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, though it may get more difficult, I know this, that as I walk upon that narrow way that is rocky and hard, I will never be alone. He will walk with me every single step of the way from here to the point that I enter into eternity to be with him for all eternity. It is interesting to me that this tree represented the kingdom that was established in and through Nebuchadnezzar. But later on in the gospel, Jesus told us this, that from a mustard seed, a great tree would grow. And that tree would be the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, 31 through 32, he says another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it grew, has grown. It is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that, well, notice this, that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. It might seem like such a small thing, the gospel, spoken 2,000 years ago by Jesus, still rippling through the annals of history, echoing till the very day in which we live today in 2021. History has not been able to stop their momentum of the moving of the gospel forward throughout this entire world. 
Though the kingdom of men can be great, the kingdom of God will succeed it and will be greater and it will be an everlasting kingdom for us to enjoy. For us as Christians, this is the worst that it'll ever be. For someone who doesn't know Christ, this world will be the best that it will ever be. Which kingdom are you part of today? But notice with me in verse 28 is now this dream received and revealed is now being realized in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. 12 months later, that's how many months God gave him to repent. That's how many months God gave him to check his heart before him, to realize that God is exactly who he said he was. Now notice, he's walking on the rooftop, And the king, in verse 30, then spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? King Nebuchadnezzar had done wonderful things in Babylon. He rerouted the Euphrates rivers to flow channels through the city of Babylon. There were beautiful hanging gardens in Babylon that were absolutely gorgeous. He embellished the major streets, especially the great procession way, which all the pagan gods were worshipped and honored on. Babylon was something to behold, and that's why it was coveted by so many after, the Medes and the Persian and Alexander the Great of the Greeks. But notice his heart. Look at what I have done. It's amazing. To my glory to my renowned, by my mighty power, and in honor of my majesty. Well, that line has been crossed. And there was a God in heaven who had heard these things. And as he predicted 12 months earlier, these things fell upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Notice in verse 31. And while the word was still In the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. I gave it to you. I am now taking it away from you. Because again, God is sovereign over all the affairs of men. And they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They will make you eat grass like oxen and seven times or seven years shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever He chooses. And that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Notice the absence of Daniel at this moment. It wasn't Daniel coming to Nebuchadnezzar, pronouncing the judgment upon him, such as Nathan did with King David or Moses did with Pharaoh. This was between God and King Nebuchadnezzar. 
It was at this moment that God heard these words most likely spoken to himself, possibly not even out loud, but within his heart. God saw, God heard, and God responded. The Hebrew writer tells us that everything within our heart and mind are open and naked unto the Lord. There is no secrets between us and him. He knows us so intimately and personally. He knows everything about us. So to think that we are hiding something from him is only lying to ourselves. King Nebuchadnezzar is now being held accountable for his actions. And allowing him to enter into a time which appears to be a moment of insanity, a temporary insanity living like a wild beast. One had called this zoon, uh, zoo anthropology, which I've never heard of. A condition where a human being takes the likeness of an animal. God shows him through his own uh, demise the true character and nature of his deprived heart. We always want to believe that we are better before God than we actually are, don't we? We do so by comparing ourselves with those around us. We always find some of the worst characters and compare ourselves to them, making us feel a little better about ourselves and then certainly convincing ourselves that God must like us better. But that's not true. The only standard that we are to compare ourselves to is Jesus Christ. His perfection immediately warrants and provokes within us a humility. We should be able to see the own, our own depravity within our heart. As David prayed, he says, Search my heart to see if there be any wicked way within it. And it's only then, until we truly come to grips with the evil and the corruption and depravity within our own heart, do we then reach out and cry out to God for a Savior, right? You know, I often have used this illustration, and I think it's appropriate to do again. I don't know about you, but one of my arch enemies is the telemarketer. How about you? We get them all day and night. They start at sometimes 9 o'clock in the morning and they end 9 o'clock at night. One time I had had enough. And I picked up the phone and they tried to begin selling me aluminum siding. Now, that can be a needed product, correct? The only problem is, is that I live in a brick condominium building. I have no need for aluminum siding whatsoever. And often when we share the gospel, we are like that salesperson who's trying to sell us aluminum siding when we don't need it. See, before we can be effective in sharing the gospel, we need to tell people the bad news to prepare them for the good news. We need to help them accurately see the fallen nature of their own personal heart. We need to help them understand as one beggar showing another beggar where to find some food because we're no better than they, are we? We need to help them understand that, hey, your sin has separated you from God and you are desperately in need of a Savior. And that's exactly what God did here to Nebuchadnezzar. He showed Nebuchadnezzar the content of his own heart. 
And he made Nebuchadnezzar face it and deal with it. But for 12 months, he continued to enjoy that prosperity, the grace, the beauty of his kingdom. But Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. should be on the slide behind you. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Meaning, God doesn't seem to care. It's like those watching Noah build the ark for 120 years. During those 120 years, those were 120 years of grace that God was giving the people of this earth to repent. And when they hadn't, it began to rain. Let us not confuse God's absence of intercession in our wrongdoings as Him condoning our wrongdoings. He's giving you a moment of pause to bring you to repentance. That's what Solomon is saying here. Let us not grow comfortable in our evils just simply because the execution of the sentence of God doesn't come speedily. Verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. They're not going to get away with it forever. Though they may get away with it here and escape the accountability that our justice system is meant to hold them to, they won't get away uh, from it before God. They won't escape accountability and judgment before God. The only way in doing so would be to come to Jesus Christ. That's the only way. So now as Nebuchadnezzar is in the field for these seven years, most scholars believe that it was Daniel who ran Babylon those seven years. I can't confirm that, but it's interesting how many infer to that. Holding that place for Nebuchadnezzar's eventual return. Verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now again, notice he's speaking about himself, lifted my eyes to heaven, And my understanding was returned to me. My sanity was returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honor Him who lives forever. Sounds like a broken man to me. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are repute as nothing. He does according to His will. There's the sovereignty of God in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can resist his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, for us as believers, that should be one of the most comforting set of verses throughout the book of Daniel. It means this, if I may sum it up for you, as I sum it up in the book of First Eric, right after the book of First Opinions. God is in control. 
And though things may seem chaotic around us, and things are going awry before us, God is in control. And He is bringing us to exactly the place that He wants to bring us. And His will will be perfectly fulfilled no matter what man does. It means that I can trust the end of this book, knowing that it will come to pass, knowing that a new heaven and a new earth wait for me. I can be confident that one day that I will see Jesus Himself sitting on the throne there in Jerusalem and reigning for a thousand years. I can be confident that one day the sky will crack open and riding on a white horse will be our Lord and Savior returning to this earth. And He's going to set everything right. And we can be comforted by that because we are one who is in the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar has now come to that place. After seven years of misery, seven years of humiliation, he's now come to that realization of who God actually is. Let me say something to you this morning, if I may. Maybe you have a loved one who has walked away from the Lord. Maybe you have a son, a daughter, or a spouse who is not walking with the Lord, and it's been years. Every day that they draw breath is another day of hope for them to either come back or come to Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Hold fast. When I got saved in 1986, I was the only Christian in my home. And I began to grow in my faith and learn about my Lord. My mom and dad challenged me every step of the way. My mom uh, identified as Catholic but never practiced. My dad identified as an agnostic. And he just didn't know if God was there or if God could even be known. And year after year after year, I would witness to them. I would share Christ with them. I would plead with them. I would debate with them, both very educated people. And sometimes I would feel that I was making huge headway. And then other times I felt I was back to where I started. And I kept praying, and Dina kept praying for them. Praying and praying and praying. Until one day, two years before my mom died, she received Jesus Christ and died several a couple years after that. My dad, it was the day before he died, received Jesus Christ. And the last song he sang was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Every day that they draw breath is another day of hope for God's intervention in their life. Because it is a work of God in their life. As much as we would like to, we can't save them. As much as we would like to pass on our salvation to our kids, we can't do that because God doesn't have any grandkids. They have to make that choice for themselves. But God's hand is never too short that he cannot reach them. His ear is never deaf that he, that he cannot hear them. We just need to keep praying and be faithful witnesses to them that they too may enter in to the incredible joy of salvation in Jesus Christ. In verse 36, and we'll close with these words. 
And at that same time, my reason returned to me, Nebuchadnezzar states. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor, splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored to me. And I was restored to my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added to me. But notice what he says in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven of all whose works are true and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to put down. One of the greatest weapons you have in your witnessing arsenal is your story. So take the advantage over the holidays to talk story with your relatives, your loved ones. Don't give up because God's not giving up on them. I close with this. This beautiful psalm, Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Today, we must understand that we as Christians or before coming to Christ can do it the easy way or the hard way. I pray that you would do it the easy way. Why? Because Matthew 23, 12 says, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James later then went on and we close with this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Thank you, Lord, for this text.